year of our recommit series, we called it, where we're recommitting ourselves to our church covenant. We've looked through the first two portions of the covenant, and we're going to look at our third portion today. Let's go ahead and pray as we jump into it this morning. Lord, we ask that you would honor and glorify your name this morning, that your spirit would convict us, that he would refresh us, that he would transform us more into who you call us to be as your people in this world. May our eyes fix on Jesus and the gospel, the good news that saves us, that brings us together, and that is our hope every day now and for all eternity, the hope that Jesus paid it all. Help us this morning to understand your word and to live by it. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Can I get an amen? While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. While you were still dead in your trespasses, Christ died for you. While you were still hostile towards God, an enemy of God, Christ died for you. Do you actually believe that? The gospel message that every single person in our world, ourselves included, is a sinner headed to eternal death unless we give our lives to Jesus who died on the cross for us. This is the best news in the world if you actually believe it. And what we're going to see in the last part of our covenant this morning is that the gospel message must do something to us. Our worship changes. Our relationships to others changes. Our devotion to each other changes. Our entire purpose in life changes. Today has the title of Gospel Sending in the last part of our covenant. So let's go ahead and read that portion of our covenant here. It's on your handout 
It's on the covenant if you grab a copy of that on your way in. We will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and to seek to see the gospel transform everything around us, ourselves, our families, our church, our community, and the world. We will, when we move from this place as soon as possible, unite with another faith community where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. So first, as we look at this, we see that in this portion, the gospel stirs worship. Right? We have worship and ordinances, which both really kind of go together. And we already touched on this, these aspects a little bit last week as we saw our commitment right, to not forsake meeting together. But let me just reemphasize one thing I said last week that I think this also hits on. Just being present at the service is not the demand. It's not just filling the pew. Right? Last week we saw that as we gather, we stir each other to encourage each other in the faith. Here, our commitment is what? We give a pledge to worship. You don't worship simply by filling space in a pew, do you? I hope you don't believe that. I hope you don't believe that just filling the space is actual worship. Your heart, your soul is meant to be stirred to experience something when you worship. In fact, look at Acts chapter 2, when the very first believers received the Holy Spirit, poured out on them, listen to how they are described. Acts chapter 2, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, right? That's what we often do in our gatherings together. The apostles teaching scripture for us, fellowship together, the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper and ordinance, and prayer. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily, day by day, those who were being saved. So we see those first parts, right? That's what we commit ourselves to. Apostles teaching, fellowship, the Lord's Supper, prayer together. That's what we do. But do you hear by the end of it how these people are described? They have glad and generous hearts that they are praising the Lord when they come together. Is that us when we gather together on Sunday mornings? A glad heart, a generous heart, a heart that genuinely is praising God. You want to know who's just present to fill the pew and who is actually here to worship? Just watch and listen. You can hear it 
in people's voices of who's singing with a glad heart and who's not. I can see it in people's faces of who's receiving God's word with a thankful heart and who's not. You know it specifically, by the way, we talk to each other when we come together. How much we actually encourage each other to set our minds on heavenly things rather than earthly treasures. My friends, I'm far less concerned with how many pews are filled and far more concerned with how spirit-filled the people are who are in the pews. Jesus took 12 and began the evangelization of the entire world. What do you think God could do with 20 people in this church genuinely worshiping him? What do you think he could do in VV, Indiana with 20 of us if he could spread the gospel to the whole world beginning with 12? So the gospel stirs us to worship, which we see specifically in the ordinances, right? In baptism and in the Lord's Supper are our two ordinances that we do. But then we turn to the next two on the list. Doctrine and disciplines. Discipline and doctrines. So first we commit to sustaining our worship together, to have glad hearts that are genuinely praising God when we come together. But now we see the gospel doesn't just stir worship, the gospel exposes. Now we have seen in past parts of our covenant, right, that the gospel is meant to bring unity, right? Unity among believers. We have more in common as believers than we do with any other person in this world. But we also have to realize that the gospel creates a dividing line between believers and unbelievers. There's a line in the sand of who does believe and who does not believe. There are certain truths, certain doctrines of the faith that are non-negotiables. You cannot disagree with certain truths and still be a Christian. To deny that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6, is to reject God himself. Even John himself, in his letter 1 John, says anybody who does so is actually an antichrist. Not the antichrist, little a antichrist. But it goes beyond just what you state you believe, what your doctrines are. It goes on on how you live. Are you living in alignment with those statements of doctrine that you're saying? To fail to live by this results in what we call church discipline. Right? Now, I know, we don't like this topic, we don't like talking about this, but it is in Scripture, after all. Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. If someone is living in sin, that sin has been brought up to them by one, then two, then the church, and they continue to be unrepentant of that sin, they are to be treated as an unbeliever to us. Now you say, that sounds harsh, doesn't it? Let me remind you of the harshest act of church discipline that we found in the book of Acts. Ananias and Sapphira had just sold their land 
and was giving most of the money to the church. Most of it. Imagine that. You sold your property and were giving most of it to the church. But what you did was you decided you were going to keep back a little bit for yourself, but you told the church that this was everything. So you just lied about the amount. You're still giving all sorts of money to the church, but you lied about the amount. Both of them struck down dead. That's how seriously God cares about the purity of his people. He cares about whether people are walking in holiness or not. If anyone refuses to do so, they prove themselves to be exposed and prove themselves that they're not walking in belief of the true gospel. So for us, we have to carefully look at our own lives and the lives of those who gather with us. Plain and simple, if someone's living in unrepentant sin, they're not to be treated as if they're a believer. If someone in this congregation has a problem, whatever it may be, they're not believing the gospel if they're continuing in that unrepentant sin. It could be any sort of idolatry, right, where they're not worshiping God, but they're worshiping something else in life, whether it's pleasure, whether it's money, whether it's sports, whatever it may be. If they refuse to turn their worship to God first, they're not walking in the faith. And my friends, let me say this with as much love as I can possibly stir up within me. If someone has committed themselves to be a member of our church, but has abandoned our gatherings together, is nowhere to be found in worship with us and in our care for one another, we must consider why we would continue to call them a member of this church. I went through our membership this past week. 224 church members of Switzerland Baptist Church. Look around you folks. 224 people. I counted, since I've been here, how many I've seen on a regular basis or how many I know still consider this their church home, but they're unable to attend for various reasons that they health can't get out of the house, whatever it is. I counted. You know how many people I counted that I know consider this their church home, either by evidence of them here or just the fact that I know that from information? 28. 28 of 224 people. who have broken already just one statement in our church covenant and said, they signed, we will not forsake the assembling together. And they've done so. So I think the process goes like this. We contact those who haven't been here. As many as we can, right? I know that information may have changed and we don't have it, but... As many as we can, we contact and ask them if they would recommit themselves to this covenant like we're doing right now. If they sign it, we keep them as members, knowing we're expected to be held accountable by this covenant. There's an expectation that people are actually going to live by it. If they don't sign it, we have to ask, what are they really committed to? Are they really committed to this church and this church's covenant, right? If they're, if they're 
not going to sign it because they're attending another church. They shouldn't be members of our church anyway, right? They should become members of that church. But if they're not attending church at all, now we have to start to say, this is a willing neglect to live according to the covenant that they made with us. We have to start looking at people like that as, in the parable of the four soils, as the thorny soil where they receive the message and they join together, but then eventually the cares of the world start to choke it out and they start to now abandon us for the cares of the world. And let me just add one more thing. If anyone here is a member and you're hearing this church covenant being taught and you think it's too hard for you to commit yourself to, please consider asking to be removed from the membership. If you think you're not going to actually live up to this and commit yourself to this, or like the announcement that's in the bulletin, we came together and decided it probably would be a good idea for anybody who is a member that wants to sign this and renew their membership to have heard all three of these messages. That's probably a good idea to hear our biblical basis for everything in our covenant if, if that is too much to ask of someone who's on our membership list, just to listen to th- the three messages about the covenant, then how committed are you really to living by the covenant? At least all of us deserve to have the clarity of knowing who's in it with us here, don't we? We all should at least have that clarity. Who's committed to this? And I get it. It can be a hard thing, right? Seems like we're creating division, doesn't it? Matthew chapter 10. Listen to the words of Jesus. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. A sword, division between those who live for Christ and those who don't. I get it. Some of you may have relatives on this membership list. It might be a difficult thing to go through this process and say, are they really committed to this covenant like they signed that they were one day? But based on the words we just read from Jesus, if you're more worried about your relative status on this membership list than you are about how they're actually living by a biblical standard or not, we have a problem. Being on this membership list doesn't save them, right? Membership doesn't save somebody, although everybody that's saved should be a member of a church somewhere. So the gospel exposes those who truly believe and those who don't whether it be by the doctrines they believe or by the way they live in the process of discipline. From there, we see our covenant state this. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry. The gospel stirs generosity. Notice first, though, it states the attitude, 
right? Straight from Scripture, God loves a cheerful giver. Not someone who does so with reluctance, not someone who feels under compulsion to give. But it also states the timing of it, that this will be done regularly. Not you're going to give cheerfully once a year or whenever you feel like you can spare some change. It's a consistent thing. And it's all for the support of the ministry. So just take this as a reminder. Your giving to this church body is a clue, a hint, an indicator of how valuable you find this church to be. How devoted you are to this church. And I'm not saying the amount of money you give determines how devoted you are. That's not what I'm saying. Because there's simply people in life who make more money than others. Plain and simple. There can be plenty of people who give lots of money to churches who are not following how they're supposed to give. I'm saying your consistency and your attitude in your giving to this church is an indicator of what you really believe about this church. And it supports the ministry in two capacities we see there at first. It supports the expenses of the church and the relief of the poor. So first, it supports the inner workings of the church, right? Churches have expenses to keep things running. We try to keep those limited and as much in check as we possibly can, especially our trustees and deacons do a great job at that. But we do have upkeep for this beautiful building that we have, right? We have a boiler that has to be serviced, and now has to be flushed by our trustees slash deacons on a regular basis. We have utility bills to keep things cool or warm, depending on the season that we're in. You support having a pastor who attempts, not perfectly by any means, but attempts to lead our church in worship, in caring for one another, in growth of our spiritual lives, and in reaching the people in the world around us. And that's the second capacity. First, it's the inner workings. The second capacity that you support in your giving is ministry for people. Here it's stated as the relief of the poor. This can be inside the church or outside the church. Right? If you jump back to Acts chapter 2, did you hear what was going on there? And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Basically, the commitment here, nobody in this church as a member goes hungry unless we all go hungry. We're willing to do whatever sacrifices we need to to make sure everybody has what they need. And then it also supports people outside the church in some sense. It doesn't mean just handing cash over to people outside the church. We know sometimes where that goes to. But it means that we use the funds given to the church to provide relief for the poor who may not even be part of this church. It may mean helping someone with paying a bill. It may mean we provide a resource to help people in life, right? It could be a backpack with school supplies. We did that. It could be some sort of effort to help people with their addictions here in our area, which really leads us to the next point. If you look at the final statement of that first paragraph, we support the ministry of the church to see the gospel transform everything around us. And then it lists off five areas of life. Yourself, your family, the church, the community, and the world. 
the gospel spreads. First, you commit that the gospel has changed and is changing you. Right? That's everything we've looked at in the last three weeks, basically, in this church covenant. All sorts of ways you're changed by the gospel. You give yourself to Jesus. You have unity with others. You love, care, and watch over other church members. You gather with those people. You are a student of God's word. You handle conflict differently. You have selfless friendships. You reject worldliness and walk in holiness. Right? These are all just some of the important changes that happen when we believe the gospel. And we are to examine ourselves and consider whether these things are true of us. Look at what is said in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Pretty straight, straightforward. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. So we are to examine ourselves. Is Jesus Christ in me? Have I really believed the gospel? Are these changes that we see in the covenant true of me? Examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. But then take it to the next step, right? This gospel should not just change you, it should change your family, the next kind of extension of yourself. It should change the kind of husband, wife, mom, dad, son, daughter that you are. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Wives, submit, trust your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, lest they become discouraged. Or take Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4, and hear this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house and you, when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now somebody please tell me what part of your life was not included by that. What part of your family home life was not included there? It means everything. Wherever you go, on the inside or the outside of your home, the truths of God should be the foundation of everything. It must be placed first and foremost in our families. If the gospel doesn't spread from you just to the extension of your family, how good of news is it really to you? If you can't even talk about it with your own family members, is it really that good of news? Next step is the church. We're not going to spend time on that because that's been the entire covenant, right? The entire covenant is talking about how we operate and interact with each other as those who have been changed by the gospel. So then we move into the final two words, which are really the extension outside of our church body, the community and the world around us. If the gospel fails to reach those around us who don't believe the gospel, we've missed what it means to be disciples. Let's go to 
the text that I put there as kind of our main text for the day. We'll camp out here the rest of our time. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And just look at verse 21. We have the gospel message right here in verse 21. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's the gospel message, right? Jesus, who knew no sin, was made to be sin, so that through him we, who have sin, can become or receive Christ's righteousness and thus be reconciled to God. So we have the gospel message, but it's not just a transaction that takes place. It's not just a one-moment transaction, because if you look back to verse 17, what's true of these people? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Your life is entirely different now. The old you has passed away. There is a new you. And we have a couple examples of what's new about you. Just jump back one verse to verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. What's this mean? The people around us in the community and the world are not just flesh and bones anymore. They are human beings made in the image of God who have souls that are going to spend eternity somewhere. Every single person in this community struggling with a drug addiction. Every single person who spends their Saturday night at the bar so they can avoid church on Sunday morning. Every person who believes it's fine to miss church for six months at a time in order for their seven-year-old to play on a soccer or football team. Every single person you walk by in the grocery store, every single coworker that you've ever had, all of them are headed to an eternity. If they don't hear and believe the good news of Jesus, this gospel that has changed our lives, they will spend forever apart from God. Eternal separation. Do you see eternal souls when you look at people? When you look at the people in your community, the people around us, our neighbors, do we see eternity before them? And it's more than just how we view people. It's what we're motivated by when we interact with people. Jump back to verse 14 real quick of this. Just the first part. For the love of Christ controls us. You don't belong to yourself anymore if you've believed this gospel. You are controlled by the love of Jesus now. If we're not sharing the gospel with the community around us, it's because we're not being controlled by the love of Christ. Think about it. Why don't you share the gospel with certain people in your life? Is it because you don't really think about their souls? You don't really see eternity when you look at these people? So in some sense, you're indifferent or calloused to the reality of eternity of these people around you? That's a sad place to be. I'm a Christian who doesn't think about eternity. Or 
Is it the flip side? And maybe you care too much what these people think about you. Not that you care too much about their soul, but you care too much about their opinion. You fear their rejection of you. You fear the loss of your relationship with them. Truth is, whether it's indifference or caring too much about their opinion, neither one of these are driven by love. At least not the love of Christ. If you truly believe the gospel, you believe the best way to love others is that they will believe the gospel. No matter how hard it gets. And church, let me tell you, it's going to be hard. I promise you that. Jesus promised you that. People will reject you. People will abandon you. People will hate you. I just heard of a church this week in Indiana that has a biblical, huge, massive biblical counseling ministry that their city is trying to pass an ordinance that if they sit down with any minor and share what biblical sexuality actually is, they're fined $1,000 a day. And that's to any unlicensed person sharing the view of Scripture. That's not just biblical counselors and pastors anymore. That's even these kids' own parents. If this ordinance passes, a parent could be fined $1,000 a day for sharing a biblical view of sexuality with their own minor children. Even if the parents want it to be shared with them, even if the parents share it themselves, they can be fined for opening up their Bibles before their children and reading certain verses. My friends, if we're too scared to share the gospel with people around us because the worst thing that might happen is people think we're awkward and they walk away from us? What are we going to do if it gets worse? What are we going to do if it becomes now illegal to share the gospel with people around us? What would we do if it became illegal for us to gather together? I'm not saying it's going to happen, but if it did, what would we do? Are we going to be like the rocky soil in that parable? where it starts to grow, but it has no roots, so when persecution comes, it withers away and dies? No, we need to be driven by the love of Christ for the people around us, so that then we will fulfill verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God makes his appeal appeal to others through us who have already believed the gospel. We should be calling out for others to be reconciled to God. Listen, my friends, let me just ask the question. If not you, then who? If you're not the ambassadors for Christ in this community, then who is? Do you think that those who are struggling with drugs are going to have some sort of random revelation about believing in Jesus when they're strung out one day? Do you think your neighbor who thinks that they're a good person but they don't really trust in Jesus is just going to randomly have a dream one night saying that he needs to believe in Jesus? 
Or even these people who claim to be Christians, but they say, I'm going to be a Christian, but I'm going to avoid any gathering together of Christians. Are we going to allow them to continue to walk in the delusion that Christ doesn't demand everything from them? Right? Take up your cross and follow me. That's everything. We are his ambassadors in this world. He has chosen his church, those of us who believe the gospel to be the witnesses, the ones calling out from the rooftops for others to give themselves to Jesus. And my friends, let me tell you, this is, this is the only hope for our church. We have to go to those who are walking in unbelief and beckon them to be reconciled to God. This is what Christians do. In fact, if you remember last week, I had a prayer request that we had shared that Sadie was going through the process of hearing the gospel over and over, and we had kind of left it on in her court, kind of, let her ask questions as she feels, and hopefully she begins to understand. Well, I think it was last Sunday night after church that evening, she said she was ready to give her burden of sin to Jesus on the cross. And we said, go, fine, do it. And so she went over in the little corner of the playroom and she looked up and she prayed to God that Jesus would take her burden of sin and she came back and said that it happened and we're praising God, but then we're also like, she's four, you know? So like we're, we're waiting to see, you know, evidence of fruit. But let me tell you something, church. I saw evidence of fruit immediately because you know what she did? Can I go tell Albert he needs to trust in Jesus? Can I go ask Albert if he'll give his burden of sin to Jesus? Oh, church, no wonder Jesus says our faith must be like that of a child. When's the last time we acted that way? When's the last time that we saw somebody with eternity before them and knew they haven't trusted in Jesus and said, can I go tell them about that? Goodness. If we don't seek the salvation of other people in the community around us, then what are we really doing here? Are we just going to huddle together here and look around? Look around. Are we just going to huddle together and say, we're just going to wait out till we pass away? We're just going to wait out together here on Sunday mornings, gather together, give our worship, but not really worry about the people around us. Is that what kind of church we're going to be? That's not the church I want. I can tell you it's not the church that Jesus wants, and I sure hope it's not the church that you want. We can't just sit here and say, our hope relies on people who once signed this covenant, who have been gone for years now, that one day they'll come back. That's not our hope, church. Amen? That is not our hope. Our hope is in the fact that we have people around us, this community filled with people who haven't trusted in Jesus, who don't even claim to trust in Jesus. And they need to know the gospel message. We must. Not should. Not will one day. Not, well, as long as this happens. We must take the gospel to the community around us. If we decide we're not going to, well... I don't know what we call ourselves anymore. But it's sure not a church. At least not a church of Jesus. The gospel must spread. And then the last point here of your second paragraph, just that one kind of sentence, the gospel perseveres. And we've already discussed the reality of this. You commit yourself that if you ever leave this faith community, remember, there's people out there Uh, on our 224 member list that have committed to this. 
If you ever leave this faith community, you will, as soon as possible, find another one to unite with. Specifically one where you can carry out the same spirit of what you see in this covenant and that lives by the principles of God's word. If the gospel has truly saved you, you will endure to the end. You will walk by this faith to the very end. And it's this faith that unites you with other believers. A person who truly believes in Jesus will persevere in the gospel, but they won't just persevere by themselves. They're going to persevere within a community of faith. We commit ourselves that no matter where we, any of us might end up in this world, we will seek to find a community of believers, a church body, to walk through the Christian faith with. My friends, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That truth must change us. We have been brought from death to life. Your hunger has been satisfied by the bread of life. Your sins have been forgiven and your heart has been washed clean. Your old self has died and Christ now lives in you. If that is true of you, then you are an ambassador of Christ. His representative in this world, sent with a message. The same gospel message that saved you. You're sent to your families, your community, and the world around us. So my advice, commit yourself to this covenant as a church, and then go. Go into every part of your life and proclaim this message. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Let's pray. Father, may we not be content for one more second to live our lives in just the comfort of gathering together but never sharing this message with the people around us. Spirit, change our hearts, our minds, that we see every single person in our life from this point on as someone with an eternity before them. Spirit, motivate our hearts by the love of Christ in us. That we would recognize the most loving thing we can do to people, either who we know don't believe or people who claim to believe but aren't living by it, the most loving thing we can do is call them to faith and repentance in Jesus. Call them as a sinner to trust in the one who knew no sin but became sin for them. Help us, change us, motivate us 
Father, do whatever you need to do in the hearts of each one of us here that we might take this gospel to every part of the community around us. Help us see ourselves as ambassadors for you. Ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As they come up to sing our final song, plain and simple song here, Jesus saves. The gospel message, isn't it? And I hope that rings true in each one of our hearts as we leave this place. That we're not just convinced that because Jesus saved that he deserves our worship on Sunday mornings, but he deserves that message to be proclaimed to every single person in our lives. Jesus saves. Amen? Let's sing together.